One of, one of the great compelling figures in the history of the country, one of the founding fathers was the Marquis de Lafayette. Mm. And, and Lafayette was in command at Yorktown. And, and when, when the British surrendered, when Cornwallis surrendered to Washington, your, uh, Lafayette said, humanity has its victory, liberty has its country. And the Marquis came back to the United States for a tour in the lead up to the 50th anniversary of the country. And because he was only 19 in the revolution, he was the last surviving commanding general of the Revolutionary War. And the Marquis de Lafayette traveled to all 26 states. And there was a time of great and growing bitterness in the country. There had just been a presidential election between John Quincy Adams, who narrowly defeated Andrew Jackson. It was an open question that Jackson would concede uh, to John Quincy Adams. And he did it at a dinner in New York in front of the Marquis de Lafayette. And as his tour went on, it brought about a real renewal of gratitude for the accomplishment heading to the 50th anniversary of the country. And on that day, of course, both Jefferson and Adams died. But what, but what Lafayette believed in the moment of the birth of America is that it ruptured history. Right. And what, what he believed is because such a country now existed, that one day, um, inexorably, slavery would be abolished. And he accurately predicted that the last holdout of slavery would be the deep south of the United States. But he believed the event that would precipitate the ending of slavery everywhere was the American Revolution. As he predicted, it would be the end of colonialism. And what he believed is that inexorably we would be put on a path that would lead to the place that Martin Luther King talked about in his final speech, where he prophesied the mountaintop from which he could see a just society and was assassinated the next morning. But if you Listen to that speech and you read that speech, you know, during this month, an important month, Black History Month, what, what you understand is the straight line connection between Lafayette and King in understanding the potential of the country through the genius of its architecture. And there's not morality in architecture, but there's genius. And within that genius, we can begin America anew every day in America. And that is the genius of the Constitution of the United States. Yeah. Well, Steve, I'd follow up by saying that Michael pointed out that the Constitution was not written for Black men, Black free men, for women. This follows up this conversation that Victoria Carrico started. Do you think during these times preceding major population and demographic shifts that our current system will be able to evolve peacefully to fair representation? What timeline would you give this for this to occur? I think that there has never been an untroubled era in the United States, and that incontrovertibly, as a matter of fact, there is no time ever in all of human history better to be alive than right now, this moment in time. Um, over the last 80 years, you have seen an expansion of prosperity and uplifting of people all over the world, from abject poverty, from subsistence living, uh, to to approaching um, what we would you know understand as as not necessarily middle class living, but not subsistence living anymore. You've seen a a democratic revolution over the last eighty years. Advances in science, technology, 
But with each disruption, each change comes new problems. And I think that we're very much at a moment that's similar to where the country was, say, between 1890 and 1910, in the middle of a different type of revolution, the Industrial Revolution that drove massive inequalities of wealth, uh, consolidated power. And what it spawned uh, in the early part of the century was the progressive movement, the reform movement. You know, and at the at the end of the day, you know, the people of the United States, like they always have in each generation, each iteration, at each moment of challenge in the country, um, will have to address those problems, those challenges, those crises by participation. Let's move to Trump because that's what so many people want to talk about. David Schechter asks, this plays into... Uh, why are we electing these people? Who are the 74 million people that voted for Donald J. Trump in 2020 more than any presidential candidate ever received before the election? What percentage for Trump and what percentage voted against Biden? In other words, how do we change this country if so many people turned out to vote for Trump? I'm going to, um, so two of those people are my parents, um, both of whom voted for him, even after the FBI came and visited my house and told me I was on the list of the Trump bomber, um, you know, coming in at number 11. Um, I'm going to, um, I ran a race for John McCain against Barack Obama. And when I watched President Obama campaigning in 2022, my first thought watching him was, I don't really feel that bad about it. Mm-hmm. Um I must have been pretty delusional at 38, believing we had any chance to beat him. In fact, he's even better today than he was then. It's a political superstar. Every generation produces one. Um, but we lost a race to Barack Obama, um, not to Carrie Lake. And so you look at the Arizona governor's race. When Carrie Lake loses so narrowly, Herschel Walker loses so narrowly, and the spin in Washington, this has been a great victory for the Democratic Party. This is evidence that there's energy for four more years of Joe Biden, where this was a great victory for Chuck Schumer. And I, I completely, I utterly reject it. Yeah. Um, I would encourage everybody. On, on this to go watch a, a series on Hulu called Dope Sick. And it was written and directed by a friend of mine named Danny Strong, uh, stars Michael Keaton. It is an incredible uh, documentary that talks about the opioid crisis, of which we'll lose more than a million Americans to. 40% of the country doesn't have $400 cash available. Um, Farmers and blue-collar workers don't feel like they're connected uh, to the policies of the Democratic Party. And by the way, I was just talking to a Democratic friend of mine, and I said, when is the last time that you had dinner with someone who didn't have a college degree? Yeah. They couldn't answer the question. And I said, well, let me just point out to you that 62% of the country doesn't have a college degree. So, so based on that, might I suggest that you might be a little bit out of touch? And, and so when you look at this moment in time, Democratic Party has a real trust deficit in big parts of the country. And when you are a political party that is on the edge of losing 
to a Carrie Lake, to a Herschel Walker. Humility dictates that you have to sit and say, well, we won, but it's not like they're not thinking about it. And so when I look at the totality of the electorate, at the end of the day, what gets us out of this is, is better, is new. And so I think it was appalling that the Democratic National Party made no investment into Tim Ryan's race in Ohio, particularly in a month of August when he had J.D. Vance flat on his back. And we'll watch that cycle play out over again in this election cycle. Um, at the at the end of the day, I completely reject the notion, and this is very much in line with Michael I was saying, is that we're fated as a country to have a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I don't want it. I know all of you want, don't want it. Nobody wants it. Um, and I don't particularly relish a, a, a race between Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis. You know, but, it, but at the end of the day, um, when we watch this year unfold, I think this will be a tumultuous year globally, domestically. And as it as it turns out, I think it will will reveal um, a lot of things that happen in our politics that aren't that aren't being talked about uh, on television right now and the commentary shows. But I but I think a lot is going to happen. So who do you believe will be the nominee then on the Republican side, Steve? I believe Ron DeSantis is already the presumptive nominee. Michael? I believe he will be the nominee. Yeah. Um, I've never been one to say that uh, uh, Trump will run again, because I'm not convinced he will. I think it's he's placeholding for a host of reasons. Um, I'm watching to see when, when the trigger happens for him, and he decides to get serious and actually say, OK, I'm actually going to do this. Um, it's a little bit of how he approached 2016. He, he really didn't want to run for president. He kind of filled out the paperwork. And next thing you know, he had a campaign and all of a sudden, oh, you mean I won? Um, so I think there's a little bit of that going on. Um, DeSantis right now on paper seems to be the, the go-to. I'm curious to see if there is a clearing of Trump, whether or not DeSantis can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, some of the others who will not treat him the way they would treat Trump. <laughs> In other words, they will, they will not go quietly into that good night against Ron DeSantis because there's a lot to pick at there, number one. And number two, DeSantis has a, a jaw made of stone glass, nothing but glass. I watched him in that debate against um, Charlie Chris and, and sat there and went, oh my God, this guy's never been hit before. Um, and you can see it. He's churlish. He's, he, he, you know, he doesn't smile. He is not going to engage the American people. And you can't fake that. Steve knows, I know, who worked with presidential candidates, worked with candidates who were running for dog catcher, for God's sake. If you don't know how to treat the dogs, guess what? You're not going to win the office. If you don't know how to smile and engage voters, that for, that's like grade one, right? Engagement. How are you going to do when the going gets really tough and your opponents are piling on? So to Steve's point, yeah, DeSantis is the lead, but that can be easily taken from him. Um, and right now inside the GOP, I'll say this as a final point. They're a get what saw. We saw that with the race for chairman. 
um, between um, uh, Harmeet and, and Rana that inside the political organs, there is a fight, a fight that Steve and I know have been going on for well over 35, 40 years. And that's still gonna get played out, whether Trump is there or not, it's going to get played out. And I think we may see it sooner in this presidential cycle if Trump, especially if he steps aside. Um, so just get your popcorn, it's gonna be, I would just, it's gonna be something. I would, I would just like add to that. I'll, I'll just kind of do this like analysis of it. You know, Michael became the chairman of the Republican Party at a really odd time, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is which is when Republicans were completely out of power. Right. Didn't didn't have a hold of the House, lost control in the House, the Senate and the White House. And in that moment in time, um, what became the, the center of power of the party was Fox News and, yeah. and, and the and the and the ultimate emperor of the party was Roger Ailes. And every elected member of Congress was terrified of Roger Ailes, with few exceptions, including Michael Steele, mm -hmm. right? And, and Michael Steele, you know, got hit a lot because of that. But, but at the end of the day, every single one of these Republicans would have pushed their moms off the edge of the cliff <laughs> to avoid pissing off Roger Ailes. The king is dead. Long live the king. Who took out Roger Ailes? It was Donald Trump. Donald Trump did it when he attacked Megyn Kelly and Roger Ailes said he teach Trump a lesson and the Fox viewers liked Trump more than they liked Roger Ailes, proving the wisdom once again of John Kennedy's admonition about the danger of riding tigers for the pursuit of power is often you wind up inside the tiger's belly. The person who has defenestrated Donald Trump without punching him, without squabbling with him, is Ron DeSantis. And the way that you know he's on top is because the grifter class, one, and two, the donor class, the hedge fund billionaires, are all in Tallahassee, not with Trump, at Mar-a-Lago. That's where he had Dick Morris, Madison Cawthorn, and the My Pillow guy in the front row. So there's going to be 30% of the Republican Party that will always be Trump. And every day in the race, there's going to be a debate at the DeSantis headquarters saying, well, we have to attack him. And someone else is going to say, but if you hit him too hard, he's going to run as a third party candidate. And then they're going to say, you have to attack him. Someone's going to say, but if you hit him and make him mad, he's going to run as a third party candidate. So Trump's going to run the entire time with a gun to the head of the party saying, I'll go independent. He'll start it immediately. The press will try to pin them down, but they never will. In the end, I think DeSantis is the nominee. Um, I think that he will has already taken Trump out, but I think we'll see Trump be influential. Uh, the press will continue to cover it. It's madness. It's political extremism. But there's billions of dollars to be made from the Trump industrial complex in the show. So we will be subjected to more of it. This is a related question from Carol Tidwell, who asks, do you see a leader who can transform the GOP into a bona fide political party that supports democracy? Look, it's what Michael Steele said at the beginning, you know, Michael, Michael could do it. But this is this is not this party. There, there is there were two people, Liz Cheney mm -hmm. and Adam Kitzinger, and now those two people are gone. So, so it is the entirety, not of every Republican in the country, 
But of every Republican, mostly, who's been elected to office in the country, and all of the Republicans in the House, with extraordinarily few exceptions, most of the Republicans in the Senate, and a lot of Republican governors. And so if you don't have the guts and the courage to look a political extremist who's a white nationalist in the eye um, and call them out, this isn't the business for you. Um, Donald Trump sat down at dinner with a Nazi, Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes has 50 Nazi groups on college campuses that are increasingly linked to the Charlie Kirk extremist youth movement. This is serious business all over the country. I don't think it's particularly confronted effectively, um, but we have a, a big fight in our culture uh, that goes to the heart of pluralism, democracy, liberty, and human rights values uh, that we're going to be fighting for as far as the eye can see, because this extremist movement has been let loose, and it is an open alliance with the elements of the Republican Party that we've talked about. I mean, you have a white nationalist fringe extremist coalition that is part of the Republican coalition. And there, there's no denying that whatsoever. And so, so long as that is the case, and until those people are repudiated and kicked out, there is no place to compromise because there is no room to compromise with a Nazi ever. So let's flip it over to the Democratic side then. Obviously, Biden has said that he will be re, uh, he will be going for the White House once again. Is there any chance that you would see him not running at this point? I, um, no, <laughs> no. I look. I think I think there was a moment, probably uh, seven eight months ago, where the president was probably looking at this, going, "Really." Do I do I really need this grief? <laughs> and then stuff started clicking. Uh, he started winning. They got past the the typical traditional Democratic conversation around stuff that no one else is talking about, or no one gives a damn about, like filibusters. Um, and they started focusing on success. You know, whether it was the infrastructure or inflation legislation or various things. Um, and then uh, Dobbs happened. The Supreme Court interjected itself in the political ether um, and galvanized Democrats for sure, but began to also alienate a whole lot of center-right Republicans uh, around the issue of abortion. And I know a lot of pro-life Republicans, a lot, folks, who did not vote for a Republican in the last cycle um, if they were uh, behind uh, sort of nationalizing Roe, um, going after women's uh, bodies and health. They didn't want any parts of that. So you have this very interesting uh, horse change, if you will, in the, in the country that reinvigorated Joe Biden, I think, in some respects. So now the bet is, and I think it's a safe bet that he's going to run. That doesn't answer the question, should he? <laughs> um, and I said back in 2020 that Joe Biden was not going to be 
um, the president of the ages. He was going to be a transformational figure. He needed to be a transformational figure. He needed to trans help us transform out of this, what, what Steve eloquently has talked about in the past and just a moment ago about the nature of this country getting caught up in Trumpism and white nationalism and what that meant to help us move off of that and to transition back um, with a steadier foot on the road of democracy. I think that work is still required. I don't see anyone right now in the position to take it from him um, uh, unless he steps down. And if he steps down, then you got a free for all in both parties. Um, and then you'll have a real center left center, excuse me, right left battle between the progressives in the on the Democratic side who want to go up against DLC uh, uh, Democrats and the hard white nationalist uh, right on the Republican side who want to go up against traditional conservatives like myself or Liz Cheney um, and even um, some moderate Republicans um, like a Larry Hogan. Um, so a lot hinges on what Biden does, believe it or not. If he stays in, it's a little bit status quo. If he gets out, it becomes a free-for-all. I don't know, Steve, what do, uh, what do you think? <laughs> um, well, I'm going to start with the should. Should the president of the United States be 87 years old almost in 2029 when his term would end? And the answer to that question is no, he should not. Um, why was George Washington great? George, George Washington was great. Uh, for a single and exceptional reason. King George III would ask about him often, what will he do? Will he be a king? Will his empire be bigger than mine? Will he be an emperor? And when King George III was told that George Washington would go home to Mount Vernon, he was astounded. And what he said is, this is the greatest man of this or any age, if this could be true. The world's graveyards, as they say, are filled with indispensable people. The idea that there is no one in a two-party country, in a nation of 330 million people, who could conceivably run and offer a vision, I disagree with. To put this into perspective, um, it would be like Franklin Roosevelt running for re-election in 1968. The first president of the 20th century, born in the 20th century, was John Kennedy in 1917. LBJ was 1908. Reagan was 1911. Carter and Bush were 1924. We, the, 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 the great men and women that we learn about who had played such a dominant role in the 20th century, mostly the first part were born in the 1800s. Um, should somebody who was elected to office in 1972 be the commander in chief pushing up on 2030? Is that healthy? Is that good? Now his predicament, now structurally you can tell, Mayor Pete, Secretary Pete, in a head-to-head -head race against Biden in New Hampshire is ahead of him. So what that tells me is that people are dying for another candidate in the race. Um, I think somebody like Tim Ryan would be a compelling candidate. I think someone like Gavin Newsom would be a compelling candidate. 
Um, but at the end of the day, the idea that democracy um, is threatened by an election, right, that we can't have an election, we can't have a competition. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the choice is going to be between the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee. And that's going to be a clear choice. And what I would just say is when we look at all the things that are playing out in the world, this is a dangerous year. And, I, and I've said all along, I think that if Joe Biden retires after a term, he will go down along with George Herbert Walker Bush uh, as one of the two most effective uh, one-term presidents in the history of the country. Uh, he will have fulfilled his presidential promises and aims, lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, and he will have claimed to say, I did everything I said I was going to do. Uh, the issue with the classified material, the coming uh, horrible investigations and cruelty that will be directed at his son. Um, and I just say, you know, four years of but her emails, the country's not in a mood for it again. Um, on the handling of the classified information and the documents. And I think for Democrats, the time is now to start thinking about the future and not to proceed from a place of fear that the only Democrat who can conceivably win in America against a fascist movement is Joe Biden. I just disagree with it. So can can I follow up real quick, Susie, just yeah. on that point? Because I, I think Steve makes an incredibly important point. And so I'm going to put my chairman's hat on. Um, and look at this from the perspective of a a party official, party chairman. What we need to understand is there's a big difference between viability and electability. Some of the individuals that Steve named are viable, but not electable. There are those who who may be electable, uh, but not viable, meaning they won't make it through a Democratic or Republican primary. That's where we find ourselves right now, which is why I said about Joe Biden that absent uh, his stepping down, how do you make that move from by he is the only one on the Democratic side who is both viable and electable. On the Republican side right now, right now, Trump is the only one who's viable and electable with that base. The question is, who is the candidate that can come out of these two primaries? right, that can galvanize the country around the very things that Steve talked about uh, when it comes to this nation and, and, and its legacy as well as its future, moving the country in that direction. That's going to be the challenge of this moment. There are those who potentially could do that, but here's the rub. Are they prepared to take on the established order of things? We're already seeing the the visceral takedown of the sitting vice president of the United States. Republicans don't have to do squat. <laughs> the Dems are doing that. So, you know, it, it just it just says to me that the country, for all the the bromides and the ad hominem of uh comments and the angst around Joe Biden's age, they're okay with that. Mm-hmm. I think in the end of the day, they'll be okay with that. They're not looking at it. Well, he'll be 89 when he gets out. It's like, I'm just like, who's going to be able to get me through the next four years? Because when I look across the aisle, there's no one there I think could do that. And on the Republican side, their problem is, how do we get out of this hole we dug with the guy with the orange hair standing above us with the shovel keep hitting us down? So this is the dynamic that the voters are looking at right now. And it's it's going to be very interesting to see 
again, I go back to the point. Joe Biden is much more of a linchpin in what happens next than people may want to give him credit for. Michael, why don't you answer your own question then? Who are these people that you see as potentially viable but not electable or vice versa? And who might be out there that we're missing? I think, I think, for example, um, you know, someone like a Tim Ryan is is electable. The question is the test for him is would he be viable in a, a primary, Democratic primary, where the progressives, very much like we've seen on the right assert themselves. I keep telling Democrats this over and over again. Y'all are not clear of the woods that we're in. So stop this. You need to disabuse yourself of that notion. That Bernie Sanders wing of the party is stronger than you may want to give it credit for and has greater influence than you would think it may or must have or should have. So I think that becomes a question for someone like a Tim Ryan. On the Republican side, someone like you know, a, a, a Larry Hogan from Maryland who left office in a blue state with a 75% approval among Democrats, almost 80%, I think statewide, it was like 80% when you factored in Republicans when he left office in January, could translate very nicely across a number of spectrums. But the question is, what is his viability in a Republican primary? Electable, yes, he could make the case for a reemergent Republican Party. But would he be able to survive a, a Republican primary in order to do that? So that's going to be what a lot of these candidates are going to be looking at, their viability versus their electability. Um, to Steve's comment about the graveyard of indispensables, that's when ego gets in. Because your ego is going to tell you, not only am I viable, but I'm electable. And you and you're sitting there and go, no, you're not. In some cases, you're neither, right? But that's going to be that's going to shape itself out as we go forward. So there are there are figures there. Um, I think probably one of the more disruptive candidates for the Republican Party will be Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. that, that for me, um, bringing those conservative principles, pushing them out there, challenging uh, the emergence of white nationalism at the same time of pushing forward in a different direction. She's someone that, again, um, where there may be a question about a mark about electability, there's also a question mark about viability. So you can see how the dynamics kind of play with each of these candidates. Steve, let's hear from you. Yeah, I think, you know, I just throw out two names. I mean, look, I, I think if Liz Cheney's on a debate stage, right, she's going to be the smartest person on the debate stage by a yeah. lot with Haley, uh, DeSantis, uh, Trump, uh, it'll, it'll be a glorious thing to watch. Um, <laughs> the other, the other, the other, um, the other person we haven't talked about that I think is, uh, that I, I think is an intriguing person as a presidential candidate is the governor of New Hampshire, Sununu, um, who is a completely normal person in the Republican party, genuinely funny, um, and has the communication skills necessary um, to be able to do it. I, I saw him speak at a dinner uh, earlier in the spring um, at one of the media dinners where they have to get up and, and tell jokes. And he's the only politician I've ever seen in all the years of going to these things who got up there without a script and just ripped. And he was, man, was he funny. Um, and and he, he cut up Trump with humor 
uh, in in a in a way that was making you know you choke as you were drinking water sitting there. And so he is a uh, comes from a political pedigree. Um, his uh, his brother was one of the smartest guys in the U.S. Senate. Uh, his dad is is an old cantankerous guy to say the to say the least. And uh, New Hampshire is an interesting state. So. You know, at the end of the day, to win a, you know, our system, what you got to do is you got to win one of these early primary states. You win one of these early primary states, you have a, you have a shot. And I, and I'll also say this: war in Ukraine is going to escalate this year. Um, there is a dangerous situation in Europe between uh, Serbia and Kosovo. Uh, the Serbian um, military has been deployed to, uh, has been mobilized to war footing three times in the last in the last four months. Uh, there's a lot of things happening in the in the world right now. You know, the president falls down the steps on Air Force One in June. It's over. Um, he has a senior moment. No disrespect. It's over. Um, a lot can happen. And and what I what I'd remind everybody of is when we think about how these campaigns go on now forever and ever and ever, and they never stop. Bill Clinton announced his candidacy for the presidency, I believe. On, on Halloween or right around it in October of 1992. Um, so so this will be a late announcing cycle, I suspect. We'll see what happens. Yeah. But a lot's going to happen between then and now. And the first thing that's going to happen, you know, that's going to get everyone's attention is I think we're certainly going to default on the debt. Um, and, and I know that because I worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger and Arnold had to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy on the California budget. Um, which is like kindergarten compared to, you know, theoretical physics class. And so we're going to have a default on the national debt for the first time in the history of the country. And it's going to cause economic chaos, I suspect. Yeah, it's funny. I was just about to ask you about the debt ceiling. Do you think that Social Security and Medicare are truly in danger, Sam Erdank asks? Yes, I do. I do because... Uh, Kevin bargained with the uh, with the devil, um, and in the course of that bargain, not only did he play all of his cards, he then started removing his clothing. Uh, and at the end of the day, he sat there buck naked with nothing else to give. That's not an image his, I want to hear. Except, I, you know, I, know, I, know, I know, except his dignity. And then he put that on the table too. And I agree uh, that I, I just don't see... Um, how he extricates himself from the bargain that he's made with the individuals with whom he's made that bargain. Um, they have driven a hard line. They do not want to negotiate um, anything other than spending, which has nothing to do with the crisis that Steve's referred to um, that's looming ahead. It is about paying bills for money already spent. And the fact that they are so cynical in their rhetoric and in their attitudes um, to project that this is something other than that tells me that the corner they've boxed themselves into is narrower and narrower and smaller for them. Uh, and it's going to be hard to get out from under. So yeah, we're very much looming um, in heading in that direction. And my only hope is that the country does the smart thing and hold them accountable. This is not complicated, people. They told us up front, this is what they wanted to do. And so when they do it, when they tell Joe Biden to go pound sand and Joe Biden goes, okay, that's not Joe Biden's fault. 
Because Joe Biden is just saying, can we just pay the credit card tab that you ran up over the last uh, number of years, some eight to $10 trillion? Can we pay that bill, start paying down on that? Can we cover that before we start talking about something else? And their answer is no. So who's responsible for that? You know, the creditor sits there and go, well, you're not paying the paying the bill that you owe, they're not gonna, they're not gonna blame some third party. They're gonna hold you accountable. And that's what we're facing. The, the first people to give us a loan after the American Revolution were the Dutch, right? They gave us a loan, right? They said, your credit is good with us, right? We beat the British, right? We, we've never not paid our nut, ever, right? So, so now we have 31 trillion in debt, no one has ever added more debt to the American bill than Donald Trump in, in four years. Yep. Um, the, the spending um, should terrify everybody. Um, your vestigal old Republican in a two-party system, right, the way it's supposed to work, right, you have one party, you always need a person in the room who's going to say, you're gonna, but you're going to bankrupt us. You always need that person. You need that person in a family. You need that person in a business. <laughs> you need that. You need that person in the government, or you need that. You need that political party in the in the government. Um, but you know, this is a form of political nihilism. We'll we'll see it play out. A type of economic extremism. Um, you know, Rick Scott wants to take Social Security away. Wants to get rid of it. And I think there's a really important thing to understand about American politics, which is if you look at the New Deal in FDR. Who institutionalized the New Deal? It was a Republican president. It was Eisenhower. Eisenhower didn't try to roll back the New Deal programs. He tried to contain some of them, tried to make sure that there was um, less government spending was his orientation towards it. After Reagan's presidency, um, Bill Clinton institutionalized the Reagan revolution. He didn't, he didn't contest it. And, and so what you had after the Obama presidency was the first nullification of a, of a presidency. Um, and so everything that President Obama did, with the exception of the national health insurance, they did their very best to nullify. And so the nullification politics on all of these social issues has bled into an extremism. And, and here it is. If they would take away the abortion right, they'll 100 percent take away Social Security. Um, a lot of this used to be kabuki theater in a different place and time. It's not anymore. Uh, everyone means exactly what they say, and everybody should be taken at face value for exactly what they say. That's right. So they say it, they mean it. What would you tell the Democrats? What would you tell the White House on how to manage this? I'll start with you, Steve. Look, you have a situation in Florida where you have teachers are liable to third degree felonies if they have the wrong books in the classroom. We have an extremist movement in this country that's exceedingly dangerous. Um, at the end of the day, politics is the business of peace, prosperity, and building a better future. I would talk about obligation. I would talk about responsibility and I would talk about reform. And I'm going to throw out an issue that Democrats should seize, which is an old Republican issue. And it's the issue of tax reform. If you have a 3,000 page tax code that has 75,000 pages of regulations, who is it that you think that helps? 
Who benefits from that? Working people? The richest, most powerful institutions, corporations, and people in the world benefit from that. And the corruption in the system at this moment in time is profound. I would run against corruption. I would run for economic growth. I would run for opportunity. And, I, and I'll just say I had this experience coming down, um, coming down the road with Tim Ryan the last two weeks of the Ohio Senate race. Um, a little Ohio River town, looked like a movie set. Um, beautiful. And come across the bridge and the first sign on the on the bench in this bucolic little time, it just says bankruptcy on it. And I and I said to him, how much did the student loan forgiveness cost? And he voted against it. And he said $350 billion. I said, $350 billion? Holy shit. It, it was, in my view, the greatest act of taking from one group of people who had nothing more to have taken from to if you were to make a list of all the people who are deserving to be given something, millennial college graduates on my list are pretty far down it. And certainly not above the working class men and women uh, who have been crushed in the opioid belt and who have been disrupted economically over globalization for 40 years. You know, we have parts of this country that don't have internet service. And one of the great achievements of the Biden presidency is his infrastructure package, which will be as socially significant as the Interstate Highway Act uh, from the late 1950s. It's one of the great infrastructure investments in the in the history of the country. And it's a it's a profound achievement. But but the Democratic Party has become unmoored from the party of Harry Truman, the party of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of John Kennedy. And, and if there is any person um, in the Democratic Party um, who is more important to kind of go back and read and study and understand, it's John Kennedy, um, the John Kennedy of 1960. Not the myth mythologized John Kennedy, not the tabloid John Kennedy, but the real man. Uh, the real man who kept the country out of war on 13 different occasions. Um, so, so we are at a dangerous hour all over, all over the world. And we need to have people in these offices who have humility, who have wisdom, uh, and have a ability to communicate, I think, honestly with the American people about the depth of the challenges and the opportunities the country faces and can communicate clearly about the cost to the whole of society about the extremist movement. Steve, I want to take a moment to follow up on a question from Gloria Dyer about Social Security being taken away, because I think it is very frightening for a lot of people to hear they've been contributing for this many years and it could be gone. So what happens to the seniors that have retired and living on that money that they paid for for their entire careers? I think that it's really, would they take Social Security away? Yes. Is Social Security in danger? Absolutely. Do I assess the risk as high that they will be successful in taking away Social Security? I don't assess it as particularly high in the, in the moment because you have enough people in the country so long as the baby boomers are all still around between now the 50-year-old Gen Xers like myself who've been paying into it since 16 years of age I'm over the age. I'm ready to get my AARP card in three short years. So I am um, 
So, so the answer is no, right? They're, they're not going to be able to be effectively doing it, but we, we should not be lackadaisical about the attempt. And, and if there's one lesson over the last eight or nine years, when, when you see the extremism start to root, kill it, right? Kill it immediately, right? Fight it, like cut it out when you see those weeds start to grow. And that's, that's the point. But Michael, why to the Republicans is the extremism okay? And I think I asked that really wanting to hear your answer more than almost anyone on this chat. I look at this and I think, what the hell are you doing if you care about the country the way that you say that you do? Why do you give the power to the Marjorie Taylor Greens? Why do you let the extremists root themselves there in Congress? Why won't the Republicans moor themselves back somewhere to the center for the good of the country? And I'm not a Pollyanna, and right. I know why you're going to say it's power, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, having lived that life. Actually, it's 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 probably a little less about power than you than you may uh, re realize. It is a lot has to do with an ongoing struggle within the GOP. Believe it or not, since uh, probably the 1930s. Um, there was, you know, Steve speaks eloquently about, you know, Rooseveltian policies and, and, and the way the country sort of emerged out of, out of the depression and into a, into this uh, industrialized era and, and, and post-war. Um, there was a lot of resistance to that, um, around the country in many respects. The party took note of that and keeping in mind, and this gets to the power piece, the pathway to the presidency existed in a, a space where the Republicans could not do well and did not do well. It was the South. Mm -hmm. The Democrats had the held the power to the White House in the South. It is the reason why John F. Kennedy went to Dallas in the first place to shore up the strength of the party in Texas because they couldn't afford to lose Texas in the upcoming presidential uh, fight. So this this thread had has been woven in and out of the party for quite some time. It manifests itself in the 19, uh, late 1950s with the uh, John Birch Society, where you had this ugly racism began to emerge inside the party, the pushback against civil rights, magnified by ultimately our nominee in 1964 and Barry Goldwater, who made it very clear he wasn't feeling civil rights, right? The party for, of and for civil rights suddenly backed away from that. Why? Because it put them on a different footing in order to gain the power, right? But it also put them in odds with themselves around a philosophical, a fundamental philosophical understanding of who they were and what they ultimately believed. That then moved into, into the 1960s with Nixon in the 68 Southern strategy was why I gave a speech in 2010 declaring the Southern strategy was dead, that we as a party would no longer adhere to this notion that we need white Southern racist men in order to win presidential or any election. But that spoke to that tension. Then you lay the culture piece on top of it. Reagan, in order to secure his nomination in 1980, remember, Reagan was not beloved by Republicans, especially the establishment. They hated him. They saw him as this left coast Republican governor of California, right? The power center was in the Northeast, um, not in the West, and certainly still not in the South. 
But the deal was cut with the moral majority, with Jerry Falwell and the crew, embracing that, that power, if you will, to get that vote in the South around social issues. And for the first time ever, the party put a pro-life plank in its platform. So you see this, this ongoing struggle within the party about what it fundamentally believed. It had long since moved off of the Lincoln-esque view that individual rights and liberties was our mainstay. The thing that helped animate and form the Republican Party and that led to the production and the work around civil rights, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, what we did in the early uh, 1960s, the late 50s and 90s, all of that has just gone away because then it became this game about power but it also became this philosophical struggle of, of exactly what do we believe? Do we believe these words? So we embrace the flag. You saw that picture of you know, Trump embracing and kissing the flag. It becomes performative because the substance of it isn't there. You know, We're a party right now without a platform. What does that say? We don't know who we are. And so we take on these, these little special interests, these groups, these power centers, and we sort of bring them into ourselves without recognizing how it eats away fundamentally of what we were founded on and what we fundamentally thought we believed. Um, and so that, for me at least, as someone who's been in this game since 1977, excuse me, 1976, <laughs> when I joined the Republican Party in that my first presidential election, I've watched this. I've been in the rooms listening to these narratives unfold around this tension um, that has very little to do with Democrats, has very little to do with working class Americans and everything to do with how we see ourselves. And we haven't reconciled that as a, as a national party in a long, long time. Reagan stopped off the stage in 89 and the struggle renewed over who we were, who would be the next conservative leader. So then we get into this battle, who's conservative, who's less conservative. And then someone like John McCain comes along or Bob Dole come along who have this ability to sort of reach across and, and pull in um, a, a varied, uh, uh, you know, selection of voters around big ideas in the nation. Um, and we rebel against it. <laughs> we absolutely rebel against it. Um, and so here we are. So that for me is, is the ongoing struggle. And unfortunately, the country kind of pays that price in the process, because all that splatters out um, across the country in a way that causes infection, if you will. And we're living with some of that now. So Michael, would, what, would you, what would you do then, Michael, then, if you were to put your old hat back on, what would you say to the Republican Party that puts out candidates like Herschel Walker, that caters to the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the mm -hmm. world? What do you say to them? What's your message? Snap the hell out of it. Snap the hell out of it. Stop pretending because your legacy does not line up with the crap you're doing now. You know damn well Putin is not your boy. You know he isn't. You know Orban is not your guy. You know TPUSA or whatever that crap is, that ain't our stick, that ain't our thing. We are a center-right party, have always been. We are a party that was born out of the individual rights of every citizen. I mean, think about how we formed ourselves and what we formed ourselves around and then went to war over it. And so now you're going to throw all of that away because some guy 
on television makes you feel good about stuff he doesn't give a damn about. And Let that's me, that's the problem. Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, was just, you know, I, was just, I was just going to say is that, you know, when you talk about the Republican Party, you know, to add on to what Michael's saying is the Republican Party is a civil rights party. Yes. Right. For the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln, of James Garfield in 1900 from the party's first nominee in 1856, John Fremont, uh, three Republican presidents were killed over, over the next 44 years. And they were killed um, in part because of their civil rights positions. Um, when, you, when you look at FDR um, and you look at the year 1940 and you look at, and I, and I, and I, and I, I really commend the Ken Burns series on the Holocaust to everybody mm. to watch. But but Ken Burns talks about this in the series, which is that Charles Lindbergh uh, was was a formidable political presence in this country. He was the only person who had the stature to take on FDR. And in 1940, by one vote, the draft was continued on. By one vote, if if that had failed, that vote, the country would have had its officer corps eviscerated seven months before Pearl Harbor. Lindbergh was very much in favor of it. FDR considered him to be a Nazi. After Pearl Harbor, that wing of the party was discredited. In 1952, when you had a resurgent wing, Mr. Isolationist, Bob Taft from Ohio, the establishment of the Republican Party played its card. Ike, mm -hmm. Eisenhower, right? I like Ike. Nobody didn't like Ike. You get to 1960, John Kennedy versus Nixon, Eisenhower's vice president. 1964, Kennedy's killed, LBJ signed civil rights, and on we go. So this extremist movement that called itself America First in the 1930s and calls itself America first in the 20 aughts. It's the same movement. It's the same conviction. It's the same people. It's the same type of extremism that the country has constantly been in a fight with, had tensions with throughout its entire history. And, and the truth of the matter is, the first time in the history of the country where the extremists took power was 2016. And that's why this moment is so different than all the other moments. It's because they got up and over the wall for a period of two years altogether in charge and have now taken power again two years after the insurrection of one of the houses of Congress. And even with a four-seat majority, we're all about to see how much damage can be done by a nihilistic political party that seeks to do one thing which is to hurt the other political party, regardless of the consequences for the whole of the nation. I would even actually go back and say the first time the extremists actually took control of, of the country was when they started to roll back the, the, the gains made in uh, after the Civil War. Uh, yeah. that 1876, in, the first stolen was, election in the history right, of the country. That's right, which ushered in the Jim Crow era uh, of our nation. So we can see these twin posts um, that Steve is talking about uh, and how um, the good people of this country have, have battled in between those extremes in trying to keep the course of the country going 
uh, in, in a direction that was evinced by our founders. Um, words on paper, trying to make that a lived and real experience for every citizen um, has been a constant trouble from the, uh, a constant problem from the very beginning. You talk about the Republican Party having been always a center-right party, but what happens if it keeps shifting to the right? Well, the only place it can go, and it's there on the edges, is it can become more violent. Right. There is no place to go to the right. It's a meaningless term um, because there is no policy. It's, it's nihilism. Right. It's, it is extremism that seeks to... Uh, take power, right, for the purposes of being in power, right, not for the purposes of a cause, a mission, a policy, or anything else. I mean, the Republican Party for quite some time, and its current manifestation has been an organized conspiracy to hold power, right? So it's not a two-dimensional line. It is a group of extremists, a gaggle of them, who get a lot of attention. Now, at the end of the day, let's just say this. I, I have my issues with with all of the Republican members of Congress right now, but i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna lighten up um to make a to make a point. let's let's look at twenty of them, right? who who you 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 would just look at them and say, well, this is this kind of a normal person. why Why don't you see them on cable news programs? Right. Why don't you see any serious people on on any of these programs? Why, why is Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert household names when they're two freshman members of Congress two years ago out of 435 members? Because the bearded lady sells. It's it sold in the 19th century when the freak shows came through the town and covered wagons, and it sells in the 2020s version of it. And so, so there is a billion-dollar industry that stokes chaos, poisons the society, elevates the craziest people in it. There's no reason why there can't be substantive discussions. I'll, right. I'll throw out a question I asked a, to a very good Democratic friend of mine. I said, there's 116,000 Americans were killed last year by fentanyl. And all of the fentanyl comes from a small place in Mexico by the cartels. I don't even think it was talked about on the news after the president's agenda in Mexico. 116,000 people. We went to war for 20 years because 3,000 people were killed in the attacks on 9-11. 116,000 a year. So the fact that, did you know that the United States Marine Corps opened its first base in 70 years? Last week in Guam, 5,000 Marines. They're the equivalent of the John Bassalone Marines who fought in Guadalcanal. Mm -hmm. They'll be the first Marines into the fight. Did you know an Air Force general, four-star, sent out a memo to his staff, mm. to, his, to his officers saying, be ready to fight in 2025? Yep. We live in a very, very dangerous moment. When you, when you look at the rapid escalation of military firepower coming into Ukraine, which I'm for, but I'd like to ask, what's the strategy? What's the end goal? 16 minutes after we gave the Ukrainians M1A1 Abrams tanks, they were asking for F-16s. And the president wisely said no. 
because an American F-16 ought not to drop bombs on Russia. How did the First World War start? It started through a series of bumblings, contradictions, the guns of August. And there's this particular thing that gives me a great deal of anxiety, and I wrote about it the other day. The 19th century was much deadlier than the 18th century, and it was much deadlier than the 17th century, which was much deadlier than the 16th, which was much deadlier than the 15th, then the 14th, and so on down the road. When you came to the 20th century, the first war of it, uh, the first global war, any global war, was what they called the Great War, and it killed 16 million people. And as the United States got drawn into it and the democracies were in it, the people who were suffering tried to give meaning to it. What would the war accomplish? And it became the war to end all wars. It became the war to end war because no one could conceivably imagine something more horrible and worse. And 20 years later, there was another war that killed 85 million people. But they didn't talk about the people who fought in it like they did at the end of the first one, that there would never be another war. And General MacArthur talked about this on the deck of the battleship Missouri as he accepted the surrender of the, of the Japanese. And he said, we're gonna have to come up with better institutions right? Because there is no more war after this with the advent of nuclear weapons. We've developed the ability to extinguish ourselves. And he talked about human character and he talked about human spirit. So, so the miracle, right, of American diplomacy across presidents of both parties is there's not been a deadlier event since 1945, Will this century be the one that defies all of human history and be the first century in history that wasn't more deadly than the one preceded it? So we have 77 years left to find out. But at this moment in time, as we hear the blustering of nuclear weapons from Russia and other places, I think it's an important note to remember that we're at the edge of the very long lifespans of the people who survived the death camps, who landed on the beaches in Normandy. In another 10 years, there'll be 3,000 combat veterans left of the Second World War out of an army of 16 million people. And late into the night, in the White House one night, President Roosevelt, with the Canadian Prime Minister, talked about the world he envisioned that would come through American leadership at the end of the Second World War. He talked about all the collective security agreements. He talked about free trade, talked about the end of the colonial era, and he talked about all of the things that came to be that prevented that next war from killing more than 85 million people. And he said to the Canadian prime minister that night as they were talking that he knew nothing lasts forever. He just wanted this global order to last and endure for as long as Everybody who was alive on the day the war was won was still alive. And the very youngest of those people are 76 years old. What are your thoughts on the Supreme Court and the way they have, uh, let's discuss Dobbs and Citizen United? Well, the, the, the Citizens United decision, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass on, but it was, it was predictable. 
and I predicted it in 2002. It came out of the McCain finance legislation, which was always unconstitutional. People like Michael and I, years before Citizens United, tried to warn what would happen when McCain-Feingold yep. was passed. And what happened is what we warned would happen, and it's been a and it's been a disaster. You know, the Dobbs decision was a radical decision. It's the first Supreme Court decision uh, in American history um, that has taken a right away um, that was previously granted by the by the court, making it different uh, than the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, for example, uh, which some people uh, use sometimes to try to say, no, they've done it before. No, they've never done it before. Um, the, uh, the court as an institution, and I ran two, nom two confirmation processes in the Bush White House, including for the chief justice, but, you know, John Roberts, you know, talked, uh, behind the scenes, um, in the White House as we were prepping them, and he meant it, um, and, and he meant it, uh, as an institutionalist. What he cared most about was the integrity of the institution, yeah. um, and tragically, on his watch, the integrity of the the integrity of the institution has collapsed. Um, people don't trust the Supreme Court. It's become divisive. And the and the number one reform that the country's got to do on the court is this: it's not expanding the court to fifteen judges. It's establishing a twenty-year term. The lifetime terms on the Supreme Court made a lot of sense in seventeen eighty-seven uh, when you were lucky to make it to fifty-two. Uh, but I just read a story about, you know, is the first person who's going to live to be 150 years old still alive? So I don't think that the founding fathers envisioned someone like Brett Kavanaugh, you know, serving on the Supreme Court one day for 111 years. Um, so we need to we need to modernize our approaches, you know, kind of take into account the longevity of human lifespan and, and do things to rebuild the integrity of our institutions to rebuild trust. Um, and, you know, but you can't rebuild trust completely from a, from a partisan perspective. And this is the thing about elections, right? In an election, you need both sides to agree that the contours of the election are legitimate, which means one political party has to be willing to lose to the other political party or democracy's in a lot of trouble. And that's the situation we're in now. It's in a lot of trouble because no matter what, one political party's taken the position that we can't lose an election. And if you have one group of candidates who says we can't lose an election and we won no matter what the voters say, it's a real, real cancer on democracy. And that's where we are. To Steve's opening point, um, as national chairman, I had the companion case to um, Citizens United. And it was a case to repeal um, McCain-Feingold because I believe then, as I do now, the ability to raise money re should rest within the political parties. Why? Because we are required by federal election law to disclose fully who our donors are every 30 days. You get to see through our FEC filings who gives us money, how much they give us, who they are, what networks they belong to, where their money comes from. McCain-Feingold stripped that ability away from us by limiting uh, uh, that ability to give that money to un unlimited amounts to the national parties 
who were required to disclose that information. This notion that all this money pours into politics, yes, yeah, so what? As long as you can regulate it and know who's giving it, right? Um, look at states that do that. Virginia don't seem to have the same problems that everyone claims exists outside of Virginia when it comes to campaign finance because you have to disclose within 24 hours, right? You have to put it in the, in the Washington Post. You have to tell people that, yeah, I just wrote a check to this campaign for $100,000. If you don't want that kind of exposure, guess what? You're not writing that check. So there was a lot of that dynamic going on. Um, with respect to Roberts and the court, um, the one thing I know about the Chief Justice, knowing him as I do, is he's not happy with where things are with the court. To Steve's point, he's a traditionalist. He's an institutionalist. He 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 values um, the 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 sanctity of the court, if you will, that it is above reproach. It is above politics. Um, and he is not happy about where this court has landed. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be hard now to extricate himself from that because he's got um, in this conservative majority um, people who are much more willing to play the political card than the judicial one. So to Steve's, I think, important point, reforms are necessary. For me, the first reform if eth is our ethics rules that need to be applied to the court, that the court has to be held to some type of ethical standard. I'm sorry, you just don't get to hear a case if your wife is whispering in your ear about the case. <laughs> you just don't get to do that. Um, and, and so, you know, recusal and things like that, other measures I think need to be seriously considered. And I agree. This idea of, oh, yeah, let's let's expand the court to 15. Well, we've done that. The court has been as big as, what, 11 or 12. It has been reduced down, down to nine. Um, we've done that whipsaw back and forth over time. Um, I think we need to get out of that, begin to assert, the, assert term limits, put those in place. Um, Steve is probably a little bit more generous than I would be. Uh, with a 20-year term, but I could live with that, knowing that in 20 years you're gone and that you kind of recycle through this court process and keep it fresh. And it will evolve with the people, with the country, one. And two, um, it makes it harder for people to game the system politically, I think, um, because uh, each president is going to want to make a pick that's going to make a difference uh, in projecting uh, the the interest of the country. And I think uh, a lot of the partisanship would tend to kind of fall to the wayside because you'll have that turnover in the court. The idealistic maybe, but it's farsight better than what we have right now. There's also, there's also like another problem that's a real thing. And I was talking to a, a good Democratic friend of, of mine about this. And it's you know, and it's just it was tough to get through the conversation because I, I wanted her to agree with me, not on a partisan point, not on an ideological point, but what I think is an observational point, which was which was this. Do, do Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh and Samuel Alito seem pissed off to you? <laughs> right? Because they are. Because they because are. They are. And and they're more pissed off. And believe me, I, I believe the Anita Hill side of this 100 percent. 
right after having watched this for 1989. But Clarence Thomas feels aggrieved by his hearings. I was there. Samuel Alito feels aggrieved by what happened to him at his hearings. Um, and Brett Kavanaugh uh, feels very aggrieved at what happened to him at his hearings. And at the end of the day, now they're there for the rest of their lives. And so confirmation process has been broken in this country for a very long time. Um, and we have a we have a very, very broken institution. It's clear clear as day to me that Alito was the leak on the abortion ruling. Uh, the situation with Tom and his, Thomas and his wife is is beyond outlandish. It's like a it's like an episode wow. from Veep. Oh, um, easy. you know, easy. And uh, the Kavanaugh situation um, when Brett Kavanaugh has the judgment of uh, to be at Matt Schlapp's house um, for a Christmas party with a hive of right wing activists, uh, you know that something's gone off the rails and it has. I feel insane to ask you, where's the accountability? I mean, how is it that we can go on? And again, I know you all have other things to do. We're wrapping this one up. There'll be more of these warnings ahead. But Steve, where's the accountability? How is nothing? I think a lot of people are feeling this way. Where is it? Like, why Why is it okay for Jenny Thomas to be shadow it's, governing? Why is Clarence Thomas pulling strings? Like, what, when will anybody be held accountable? I... I said this on a frontline PBS piece. This is not something that, you know, I took pleasure in saying because I think he was an effective president and I've always I've always liked him at some level. But but Bill Clinton, what what is Bill Clinton's legacy in the in the country? And it's this. No matter what. No matter what. Half the country responds to whatever act of depravity, corruption, whatever you tell them about with this, they say, but the Clintons did it. Mm -hmm. Now, now part of that, right, is the relentlessness of the smear campaign, you know, by by right wing media, but not all of it. But not all of it. So until we break the cycle of but so and so did it, and you just demand ethics as a standard, and whoever zaps themselves on that standard is zapped by the standard. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is, even in a state like Alabama, right, Democrats are going to get 42, 43, 44 percent of the vote. Right? It's not like this is North Korea. Doug Jones won against somebody who was bad enough. Judge Moore. So, so there has to be a relentless, consistent building effort to build the party. $3 billion was spent by the Democratic Party on elections last year at a federal level. You know what's left from it? Not even a matchbook. Nothing. Nada. Gone. Nothing that endured. No institution. So in a long-term fight, you have to build a movement around values. What are those values? Those values are American values. And essentially this, this is the dividing line in American life. And I'm just going to tell you what it is, because it's what I believe. And I think it's what all of you believe. It's 
what Michael believes. And there's two sides to this issue. This is what the issue is. And this is what the campaign should be about, because this is the only thing that matters. Believe that all men are created equal and women and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, period. That's what I'm for, right? That's what this political movement should be for, because the other side isn't for that. The other side has embraced a race-based extremism, has embraced a politics of corruption, a politics of taking, a politics of selfishness that is unworthy of the country, unworthy of the history of the country, and unworthy of the obligations and responsibilities that our ancestors have demonstrated through their blood sacrifices over the course of 247 years. So in three short years, we will be upon a remarkable milestone in human history. The United States of America will be 250 years old. And it will have been 200 years to the day since Adams and Jefferson both passed. We are a young country and time moves quickly. And so as we think about the next three years that are coming with a presidential campaign in the middle of it, the battle for the soul of the country such as it is, is an eternal one. And it will continue on and we need to be in the fight. But in the end of the day, I have absolute confidence that the extremist movement will fail, um, but it will have victories before it fails completely. Uh, we will have bad days. And there will be eras of great crisis ahead in this, in this country. And when you think about someone who died in 1935, who was born in the aftermath of the Civil War, who didn't leave, live to see the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all of the great conflagrations of our age and time, right? Think about being an American on the edge of civil war or in the aftermath of the destruction of it, the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression. We live in unequaled luxury compared to where most Americans have lived over the whole entire history of the country. So we should have a lot of gratitude, and, and we should feel like Dr. King did when he, was, when he gave his final, final sermon, when he gave his final speech in Memphis. And, and, and you know, everyone go read that speech tonight. Watch it. Watch it with your kids, with your grandkids. It's one of the greatest pieces of oratory in American history. It's one, of the, the, it's one of the top five speeches. And what he says is the good Lord comes and says, Martin, let me take you on a tour to any place, any time. And what Dr. King says is the place and time that he would stop at was the place and time that he was born into. Though he would like to have seen the pyramids and he would like to have seen ancient Rome. If he had stayed and stopped in those places, he couldn't have been in Birmingham. Couldn't have been in the South, which is where he needed to be. So in this time, our time, this fight, our fight, is something that we all need to be engaged in. And that's how we overcome this. And the American character is not one that's helpless or hopeless or pessimistic. It's defiant in the face of threat. It is defiant in the face of extremism, and it is defiant in the face of injustice. So those American qualities of defiance 
in integrity, in character, in toughness is how we get out of this. And I have no doubt that we will.